Welcome to my podcast, Stanhope Rocks, making a difference in men's lives. Each week, I bring you stories, interviews, and discussions on topics that affect men's lives. Real men discussing real topics, developing real tools that can be used daily to make a real difference and meaningful change in your life. As Albert Einstein once said, we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them. So think differently and make a choice in your life today for meaningful change. Now, let's get to today's podcast. All right. Welcome. Today I have my uh, very first interview with a gentleman that I met at a coffee shop. And it turned out that that was his coffee shop <laughs> that I did not know. And it turns out that uh, uh, he was also a pastor for J- St. John's United Methodist Church downtown. And he's been doing the spiritual work for his whole life. So welcome, uh, Pastor Rudy. Hey, Stan. Yeah. And uh, um, so today, um, what we're going to talk about is spirituality and masculinity and what Rudy's experiences have been. And we're probably going to digress a little bit and tell stories in hopes that we can answer some questions for our listeners here, also for any tools that we may have, experiences that we have, and how uh, Rudy has used spirituality uh, in, in guiding his life through his years at church, and now St. John's is going through a real dramatic change, and he's done tremendous work with the homeless and giving them all the other stuff. I, I, I sum it up with dignity. Yeah. You know, so talk a little bit about, just kind of put yourself on the map here a little bit and what you've done, uh, and just, you know, share. Hey, so first of all, man, it's good to be here. Thank you. It really, it really is. And I think we have to we have to start with the uh, with sort of the beginning of the journey, but but let me uh, let me frame it. So I'm uh, I'm 62 years old and I'm black, and and whenever we are uh, talking about masculinity, we have to uh, we have to frame that in a in a context that is is really um, like super personal uh, to one's journey. I'll give you a case in point. Um, about 28 years ago, no, maybe almost 30, almost 30 years ago, um, I was at a marriage retreat uh, with my wife, and and I wasn't a uh, believer then. I've uh, uh, I've come into uh, this faith that I'm in now 28 years ago. So prior to that, uh, I went to church for five years with my wife, not believing. Uh, in anything that was happening there, except for her, except for her, <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. So watch this, man. So I'm, uh, uh, we're at this marriage retreat, and and the guy that's leading the retreat uh, breaks off all of the men. The men go one direction, the women go another direction. Um, so we're sitting in this room, all all the guys, all the husbands, sitting in this room, and and this must have been like 1988, 89. And he writes a uh, he writes a word on the board. The word was man, M A N. And then he asked the, the 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 guys present to give him some adjectives that came to mind when they saw that word man. And um, and and words like um, protector, provider. You know all the all the super macho uh, expressions. That, that, are, that are attached to that word uh, came out. But then he, he put a prefix on that word man. He wrote the word black. And, um, and, and the mood in the room changed immediately. And, and, he, and he asked the same question. He said, okay, so, so we're still talking about a man. Um, but what comes to mind now? And, uh, and words like um, endangered and absent and uh, hurting. And, and, and the words just continue to digress. 
and and ultimately uh, men in that room uh, became extremely somber uh, and when the the light came on for all of us um, we realized that regardless to where we were in life in terms of sociola socially or economically regardless to what our, our, our position of standing in, in society was um, we all had a uh, had a perception of what manhood meant in in the context of our own journey and journeys as black men yeah so uh, so I'll say that to say um, there was a sign um, that's a really pop popular photo now but it was a photo of um, uh, demonstrators uh, black male demonstrators who uh, uh, around 1967 68 um, uh, this photo is everywhere you can you can google it and uh, or internet search it and, and find it but but the uh, the photo is I use it often and uh, and the photo uh, is a group of of black men who were demonstrating uh, for uh, equal rights for justice and all of their signs said I am a man and the one thing that, that really registered with me Stan was um, you know the, was a question and the question was why did these men have to have hold a sign uh, indicating that they were, were men uh, in order to be treated like men, and and that begins my journey. It's beautiful, man. You know, well, the um, obviously I'm a white man, right? And well, people can't see all this, yeah. and and just by, on a side note, one of the things that attracted me to Rudy is he's got the coolest little beads <laughs> on his beard. That I as I grew my beard out, I'm looking at it going, oh wow, that is too cool. So there's a coolness factor here and uh, that kind of speaks to been around a long time. You know. yeah. But you know, this, that's interesting because um, we did not in the Mankind Project, uh, which was the MKP, which you've heard me talk about a little bit, uh, um, of working with men. One of the problems that we had was integrating men of color Mm -hmm. into a white man's club. Right. Um, and we did a lot of work, and there were actual, you know, guys that were leaders in the MKP that would go and work to actually physically bring in, you know, men of color, black, Hispanic, you know, Asian, the whole thing. And it was just, and it, we got known as kind of this white man's group. Mm -hmm. And it was very tough, and on both ends. Right. And um, and there was a lot of healing that happened that way. But when you're talking about that, that's just I'm stuck in my mind here. When you talked about when you said they put black man on the board, and all of a sudden they went to another place. Went to another place. Yeah. It's like it, it it went past being just a man, and it you know that that part of them that came out that's been hurt, and uh, uh, and wanting to stand up. You you know, Stan, when you um, at, at this point in my life, I think I've been around long enough and have have had enough global experiences uh, to to really know how um, the the human condition just functions yeah now now I'll tell you a story and so so we're gonna we're gonna weave today uh, in and out of the context of race perfect because um, you uh, um, you know you, you cannot uh, basically touch a man's story uh, without uh, touching the history uh, that brought him to being. In context. In context. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, um, so I, I grew up in Houston, Texas. This is, this is my town, and I love this place. Um, you know, I've been all over the world. And, and something I always do is, uh, is reflect on what I love about the place I call home, yeah. wherever I am in the world. And in Houston, uh, in a in a very unique way, um, has always been the melting pot that it is. Uh, even as a kid, when I was here as a kid, um, but but it's it's interesting. So 
I'm, I'm thinking about my formation, uh, my, my formation into the person I am today. So, um, so from zero to about 12 years old, um, I am relegated to a back door in a, in a separate water fountain. Water fountains marked colors only. And, and what I could never understand was what was different about the water coming through the other fountain. Yeah. All right. I said, man, it must be really something. And, you know. Make you turn white. Yeah, and, and I tell you what, <laughs> as, as, as fearful as my mother would get when I would get close to that oh, fountain. God. She knew. She knew, yeah. But, but I think about that in terms of how, uh, how privilege is, is shaped in the mind of a child and how it follows that child to their grave. You know, um, you know the one thing I have uh, been able to uh, to do is um, uh, I've done enough work, my own inner work. Uh, I've been in therapy now for thirty four years. Um, I started, you know, uh, when I was about twenty eight. Uh, as a result of realizing. That uh, that I am really I was I am really screwed up and I needed help. My wife actually directed me to therapy, and from that day forward, I mean, uh, I have made discoveries, you know, unearthed, uncovered shit about myself and my being that was like, damn, that's really in there. Um, but but I but when I look back at it, you know, I see I see it as a uh, kind of like a lint ball. Life is like a lint ball, and it and it, and it accumulates and 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 uh, um, uh, it grows and it, it it and ultimately that lint ball can be as big as a house. It can fill everything up, but but you know that's that's what I am. I'm a lint ball man, and I and I'm today at this point talking to you. Uh, I am a uh, an accumulation of all of that stuff. You know that is just kind of journeyed with me. The key for this, though, and this is where we can we can we can we can segue. Um, the the key the key for me and and the work for me has been reconciling all of my shit to a, to a point of acceptance and ultimately making peace with that and and finding a way uh, to love myself and love people around me. Yeah. No. So where does being a black man and being a man, how do that how does that interact? Where does one stop? Where does one start? You know, you come to here in today's world, people say, Well, are you a what's your political party? Are you for the country? Or where's the priorities? <laughs> you know, so you know I mean, obviously you've talked about this. Um I mean I guess we're man first. Man first, yeah. And uh, and then you're dealt a hand, and I'm dealt a hand, mm -hmm. and then how do we deal with that hand in this lifetime? Yeah, you know, you know, my uh, 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 my, my father was uh, probably uh, an extreme chauvinist, um, and uh, and as a result, uh, he he made sure that I had enough of that chauvinist bullshit to. To uh, to help uh, stake my place in the world, yeah. but what I realize now, looking back, is my father knew uh, I would be uh, operating at a disadvantage from day one, and that everything he could he could put in me uh, in terms of esteem, yeah, he did. I'm short. I'm five six, man. Yeah. You know, I was always the smallest guy in the. Uh, in the streets, in the in the room, in the class, and somewhere along the way, I think my my old man knew, man, this guy's gonna need some help. <laughs> so, so, so he uh, he he really filled me with a um, uh, uh, you know as a coach and mentor, the guy was incredible. Uh, as an example, uh, it was kind of marginal, all right, but as a coach and mentor. Uh, these were the three names he called me as a as a as, as a kid growing up. He called me either uh, boss man, all right, Mr. President, 
or Big Shot. Mm. You know, so depending on the uh, context of the conversation, uh, he would call me one of those three. Hey, hey Mr. President. Uh, and normally when he called me Mr. President, we were talking about business and we were in business together. Yeah. All right. Uh, if he referred to me as 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 boss man, he was he was all, he, in that moment. He was giving me the 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 control, the power, like passing a mantle. Uh, when he called me boss man, he was really allowing me to practice leading, okay? And when he was calling me big shot, uh, we were typically uh, in the streets, you know, kind of uh, uh, hanging out, and, and that was uh, a term of endearment for him, all the while encouraging me to, uh, to stand, yeah. you know? Um, man, I, I had no idea that's what he was doing. Uh, until, um, you know, ultimately I started assuming responsibility and realized the old man had prepared me for responsibility from as early as I can remember. Yeah. So how did he prepare you for uh, being a man? Well, um, unfortunately, um, unfortunately, the, the model in, in too many... Uh, um, in too many urban circles, uh, um, you know, manhood and masculinity is also connected to human sexuality. Yeah. You know, so, um, so my dad, uh, uh, you know, made sure uh, that I had a, um, um, an appreciation for, for women. He modeled that. He appreciated women. Yeah. Uh, didn't necessarily respect them, uh, but he appreciated them. Uh, and I would say probably from uh, uh, from the from the vantage point of of objects. So so what my dad did for me, uh, which was the negative, is he gave me a um, a strong stance on objectification. Yeah. All right. And that's that's where we started. Okay. In essence, uh, women were objects. You know. So. So really, I think early in the early in the game for me, he was uh, um, he was preparing me uh, to uh, 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 to be not only a chauvinist um, but a um, uh, a womanizer, um, and um, in 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 many ways uh, an abuser. You know, um, uh, and I think he did so by by devaluing. Um, uh, by by devaluing women, yeah. you know that that's it was a rites of passage. Yeah. In in essence, uh, you uh, you have to know that uh, that you are in control, and and that this is a man's world, you know. And you know it took um, you know Stan. Uh, I lived most of my younger adult life. Uh, uh, with a very warped sense of of uh, equity as it relate related to uh, relationships with men and women. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it didn't evolve until uh, I uh, met and ultimately married uh, the woman that I'm married to today for the past thirty four years. Yeah, that's you know I uh, <clears throat> Rudy's got a fascinating story too. And uh, I, too, grew up with a very male chauvinistic father mm -hmm. um, who, who told me that never forget that women are created from the rib of man. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, and this was his way of, uh, of putting them down. And he, in today's world, you know, he was kind of of that madman generation. And uh, so I, it, now with, my, with what I know about women, I tended to look at him as a chauvinist, but in his world, he was just one of the guys. Well, you know, he went through World War II, and, right. but it, it very much a male chauvinistic piece. Yeah. And we had all boys in our family and stuff of this nature. And so on your story, you may want to just expound a little bit uh, with 
you had this uh, uh, paradox, if you will, yeah. between uh, having a father who's teaching you uh, respect and love, and then and you can share with what y'all did for a living. Yeah, man. yeah. And, and how do you, how how do you how do you equate that out? So you might want to talk. That's a fascinating story. I mean, there's how we all come to our spiritual part is is all different, and it's all fascinating to me. Well, uh, you figure, uh, you know, not only was my my dad preparing me. Uh, for a, uh, a journey in objectification. Uh, but in the work that we were doing, objectification was a requirement. So, so for those who are listening, uh, when I was five years old, my dad bought, brought a set of blueprints home. Now, that'll give you indication that I, uh, I grew up with, uh, with, a, with a sense of black privilege. Very few people knew what blueprints were. Yeah in 1962, okay, 61. But, um, but my dad brought a set of blueprints home. He was a business guy. And he rolled them out on the table, five years old, I remember it. Rolls them out on the table, and there's a building. Uh, you know, I, I'm extremely curious. As a matter of fact, I'm still curious. That's what makes me me. Yeah. Um, and he begins to tell me that that building was the the design of a motel that we were going to one day build, and we were going to make pain from uh, make money from other people's pain, you know. And uh, and 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 along the way, he began to 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 school me on on how uh, how do you make money in uh, the sex trade, you know. So what what this is what happened. So I, I go I grow up I go to college. I get a degree in business. I work in banking for a little while. Then I work. Well, I went to work for a um, for a uh, early adapted venture capital f fund. Uh, then I ultimately moved to Houston uh, in 1980. And guess what? My first project was at 23, 24 years old. I built that motel for one purpose: for the sex trade. So your dad was live. Were y'all doing that together? Oh, he did. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He only died fourteen years ago. Oh, okay, good. Actually, fifteen years ago. Cool, now. cool. So, so here we are. Um, I'm building, twenty-four years old, building a uh, basically what we ultimately deemed a borderline bordello. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> right. I heard that on your video. Yeah, I thought man. that was great. Borderline bordello. Exactly. That, that thing. Um, you know, it was it was built for one purpose. But you know, let me just interrupt yeah. for a second. You know, what's interesting to me with that is what we're talking about is this paradox of how we define ourselves. Mm -hmm. Okay, so at some level, there was this between what we're doing and and we're going to put borderline in there just because then that's going to feather it enough to where it's going to be okay. Yeah. Or you know something of that nature to where it's a justification, and like you were saying, uh, you know, we won't take their money, but, you know, we'll give them a space. <laughs> right. and, and it's just interesting as men, we yeah. do that a lot, you know, and, and, uh, uh, and that became part of your journey to ultimate, but go ahead. I just wanted yeah, to, man. just the, I always, I found that fascinating that that's the way you introduced that. Right. Is borderline bordello. Yeah, well, you know, we also uh, would say uh, uh, an innkeeper gave Joseph and Mary a place to uh, give birth to Jesus. So we were innkeepers. Oh. <laughs> Interesting. Wow. Now we got the Lord working for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. So, oh, yeah. So, yeah, man, we had a noble profession. Yeah. You know, because you know a whole lot happened yeah. in that end. Yeah. They didn't just provide places for people to. For many years, but, that was a very noble profession for a lot of people. Yeah. Or, I mean, in history, when you go back far enough. <laughs> Right. You know, and 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 the unsavory aspect of this shit always happened in, yeah. in ends. Yeah, you know, so so we you know we 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 start we build this place and and yeah we we take on the uh, 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 you know we we give it a um, a soft landing and we call it borderline, but but Stan the shit that happened in this place was terrible. Yeah, you know, you know misogyny. Um, is a uh, it's a scourge on the face of the earth, you know the uh, um, the denigration of of women and the uh, the absolute marginal marginalization of of women uh, in any way uh, is evil, yeah. and 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 so I'm immersed literally in evil. 
for most of my young adult life. Yeah. And, and, it, and it's amazing. What I really learned from that experience is how you can um, you can placate that. Yeah. You know, you can Amen. you can remove yourself, you know, psychologically uh, and even emotionally from the context and see yourself as just a businessman doing a, doing a, you know providing a service to, yeah. to the community. Well, it's a lot of uh, abusers go through that same psychology. Go through the same psychology. Yeah, they go through the same psychology. You know, it's okay to come home and and physically beat my wife or my girlfriend because of X, Y, and Z, right. and I'm going to justify it because she did A, B, and C, right. and and all of a sudden, so I can live with myself and look at myself in the mirror and move on. Exactly, and that's and that's all crap. Yeah, yeah. So, so. Moving back to that that journey, in in the process of preparing uh, me for that uh, for that moment in my uh, in, in my journey, uh, I, I think there's a uh, 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 matter of fact. I came across this concept many years ago uh, in the in the 70s, and then the concept is psychic preparation. Uh, whenever uh, historically. Um, a people, a human being, wanted to um, uh, place themselves in dominion uh, over another human being. Uh, the only because of the way we are wired, uh, we had to put uh, a less than human face on that per other person. You know, so psychic preparation in um, um, uh, during the time of slavery. Um, you know, the one way human beings were able to enslave other human beings is by making the ones being enslaved less than human. Yeah. Uh, during world... So it was okay. It was okay. Yeah. During the world okay. wars. Yeah. Um, you know, they got form, form boys from the Midwest um, shooting uh, guys, uh, uh, German guys who looked just like them. All right, so the only way you could you could psychically prepare one human being to annihilate another human being is for that human being to see that other human being as less yeah. than human. Yeah. Uh, the same as in 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 the sex trade. Yeah. You know, how do you prepare uh, uh, a kid to run a business uh, that that literally um, uh, annihilates? Uh, the the soul and spirit of another human being, uh, other than by diminishing their human qualities. Yeah. So I was prepared, yeah. and that psychic preparation uh, put me in a place where I could um, where I could uh, rent those rooms all day, multiple times, often to the same woman uh, who was coming in with with seven partners yeah. uh, in the in the course of a twenty four hour day or a twelve hour day, and and think nothing of it. You know, but uh, but ultimately, ultimately, um, you know, if we if we come to the crossroads where our mind and our heart intersect, then we ultimately have to question our actions. Yeah, and that's what happened to me. Yeah, we, you know, um, uh, one of the things that uh, I've worked with with uh, uh, coaching was this concept of pain and pleasure. Mm -hmm. um, and not necessarily, it, it could be a spiritual thing, but more I look at it as emotional, if you will, and uh, that we're either avoiding pain or gaining pleasure. And, um, and quite frankly, my experience has been, and others that I've dealt with, is the pain part of it is more powerful than the pleasure part of it. Right. Avoiding pain that we will do. And that's what change was. That was my first podcast was on change, is that we change at the speed of pain. Right, you know, and uh, uh, we we change when that pain gets to a point where it's no longer serves us, and change happens in an instant. And it's my right. judgment, you know. Right. And so, obviously, somewhere along the lines, you had one of those moments, and I, I don't know if they came at when you met your wife, when you accepted Christ in your life, or was that before, or uh, how did you get to the point from where you were, where everything was normal, renting a room, to a point where you now understand. That uh, that uh, that was a form of abuse, you know. Right. I mean, abusing yourself mm -hmm. as well as exactly. the, you know, uh, you were enabling the abuse of others, but abusing yourself because somewhere deep inside of you, there you knew that that was probably it's been buried, but that that wasn't 
maybe right or or was it what you, the way you wanted to live? Right. That's been my that was my deal with race. I grew up in a privileged white dude. Right. Okay, uh, I went to a, a white privileged high school. Okay, mm -hmm. we had the token black dude that came right. in. Okay, but he was smart as fuck. Right, and you know he was smarter than everybody else. Right. He and all the, so it wasn't your typical. You know we're going to put this. He ended up being a you know way up. The, <laughs> so it was like I had this warped sense. Right. And grew up with all this racism because I grew up in Texas. Right. But yet there was some part of me that knew, just like making fun of the the girl that walked with a gimp down the hall, right. that you know that that wasn't cool, that wasn't right, that's right. not the way I wanted to show up. Right. But it took me forty years before I could actually verbalize that and stand in front of. I never forget his name was Judge. He's this huge, big black man, yeah. and owned my racism. And, right. and it, because he he's the one who stepped out in the middle of the circle, and with the white dudes would come around and they'd say, "Well, I know how you feel." And he go, "You don't know how I feel. <laughs> right. You don't know how I feel. I'm a six foot four black man, right. and you're a five foot white man who's been privileged. Don't tell me that. Right. Now you want to tell me how you feel? Right. That's cool. Right. But don't tell me how I feel. Right. That you know how I feel because you don't. Right. You know." And and so all of a sudden, and so to own and stand in front of this was very scary for me because he could have been 80 feet, but right. I had to face my demons and I was just crying like a baby because I felt so much shame and guilt from all these previous years, right. yet I participated in that. Yeah. Not in the bad super way, like the, you know, the KKK or any right. uh, extremism, but there, I enabled that separation to go on that I don't want, I didn't want to. And from right. that point on... Then I realized that we're all just men. Exactly. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, when I'm holding this man and he's going through a problem or he's going through a challenge in his life, I don't care what color he is, what background he came from, mm -hmm. because we're bleeding the same blood, we're we're crying the same tears, exactly. and we, we're searching. You mentioned in one of your uh, uh, talks, uh, it all what, it, what something uh, we're all. Uh, looking for uh, love. I think you made some yeah. mention. I think you wrote a book about this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, my, third, uh, my third book was on love. So how did love help you find out the, 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 the man that you are today? Well, and acceptance um, and well, love. I think it began for me um, at a funeral, and and my wife and I, uh, we jokingly say it was probably the best funeral we have ever been to. It was the one where we met. Mm. We. Uh, um, I remember looking over my right shoulder. I was in this in this in this church church house, and and I was rarely in church church churches because I I wasn't a church guy, but I was there for this particular funeral, and and the, and and my future wife was there. I looked over my right shoulder. I saw I saw a light kind of em, emitting from her, and um, I made a point to meet her. Um, we met. We, we dated, and in the midst of our dating, for over several months. Um, she was an active Christian at that point. She was active, yeah. 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 We, we've, we've said she was an active Christian when she was a blood sale. Oh, no before she, <laughs> she knew. There was no yeah, confusion man, yeah. there, huh? Before she was born, she was born. Wow. But yeah, so she, she's always had yeah. that, uh, that context of faith uh, you know, in, in her being and existence. But uh, so we 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 meet date, and in the midst of this, then uh, the the damnedest thing happened. Um, but but throughout my my life, I have always um, uh, uh, really uh, had a, a, a an inner voice that would speak wisdom to me. It's the craziest thing from me too. from my earliest remembrance. Before I even knew it was an inner voice. Right, right. <laughs> it would speak wisdom to me. I learned as a as a kid to respect it, mm. which kept me out of a lot of potential problems. I got in I, I I got into a lot of potential problems because I would override that voice at times. But whenever I respected that voice, it never disappointed me. The voice tells me to not do anything that would ever cause this person to not trust me. Now that was the beginning. Mm. The, now here's I like a that. completely untrustworthy guy. Well, you had some trust in you. You just hadn't discovered it yet. Well, well, I'm, that's my belief. I think we have it in us, but yeah, I think she comes along. It's just like my wife came along and <laughs> they helped mine it for us. You know, it we wasn't need manifesting, help. Though. Yeah, it wasn't manifesting. I mean, it was yeah. there maybe, right? 
Pain and pleasure. Pain and pleasure, right. All of a sudden, you saw something that was more valuable to you than the route you were going on. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, matter of fact, M. Scott Peck said that most of our psychosis uh, evolves out of the attempt to avoid pain. Yeah. You know, and I believe that. I, I totally, I you know, they, um, you talk about that inner voice um, in the... Um, Shadow work, which is an offshoot of the MKP, they they basically Jungian shadow right. piece, and so it's it's a, it's a psychodrama, if you will, and and it's done in a very safe environment where you, you know you take somebody and you work with them, and they, they sometimes they regress and, and they get to the point of dealing with certain parts of themselves exactly. and things of this nature, and what one of the terms that they use for that inner voice is called the risk manager. The risk manager, yeah. And yeah, and so manager. so what happens is a lot of times when I was facilitating and working with them and they it, it wouldn't come, then we would literally break out the risk manager and I would have a conversation with that part of him. <laughs> because the risk manager, the truth is, has saved our lives right. many times over. Exactly. And that risk manager saved your you know behind right. many, many times. So that's your gatekeeper, if you will, right. that has the wisdom. But it's not that particular part of us right. is it doesn't you know until something unlocks, exactly. whether it be meeting your future wife right. or it be having some revelation, accepting Christ, doing whatever the case may be. Then at that point, and I have to go in and say, look, I respect that mm -hmm. you this talking to this, and it's amazing because I had this done to me. Right. And I kept thinking, well, okay, this is a bunch of BS, you know. I, you know, here's this guy going to put me outside myself and, you know. Right. And, man, when I was in the heat of things and I had this guy coming up and who wanted to talk to me and, and he, he was triggering me. And so he got me to talk to the risk manager and, and I was able to, that part of me was able to say things to him that being the nice guy wouldn't normally have said. Right, right, right. Like, I'm going to exactly. chew your head off. I'm saying it very nicely what I said, but more or less, you know, I'll kill you if you hurt me. <laughs> right. You know, and right. so if we get that understanding, right. you can you can ask me questions and I'll let, and then I'll let Stan know. And, and so this, it starts working. And that was a journey to start letting that voice come out. In, exactly. You know. That's good. And, uh, uh, you know, and once that comes out, and, 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 and because we just need permission. Right. Right. You know, if if we come in, because I mean, I can't even begin to uh, put the number to how many men you've counseled in your years. But at some point, it seems to me, isn't the first thing you develop is trust with them? Yeah. I mean, so yeah. how do you go about dealing? I mean, what do you when you deal with men when they come to you? Wh what do you do? Well, it depends on 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 what the the overriding issue is, because I. I you know, my my world is extremely diverse, and and I uh, just in the in the run of a typical week, I will interact from with people who are homeless and completely destitute to uh, to heads of state, yeah. and all points in between. Yeah, you know, um, you know, it's a so I have a an extremely interesting uh, spectrum. Of, of friends and, and 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 occurrences, but but the one thing that I uh, uh, you know with with enfranchised guys who are uh, who are moving in a, in a segment of life uh, that puts them into an in interaction with uh, with people, um, um, often often the the challenge is you know how they are treating the people at home. And uh, and I, I have one one position with those guys. I tell those guys, okay, uh, think about for a moment the 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 one person, the one person of the opposite sex uh, that you uh, respect in your workplace for whatever reason. That person is is a, a superior. That person is male or female. Male or female. Okay. The opposite sex. Okay. And and I tell that person, uh, I tell the, the 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 man that I'm talking to, uh, female is is normally the the challenge at home is normally uh, female. Yeah. You know, sometimes same gender. Yeah. You know, folk come my way and we yeah. we have a similar conversation. Yeah. But I tell them the same thing. I say, look, the person that you respect the most in your workplace, that you you know. You don't say shit out of line to them. Yeah. 
you know, you're you're always on your on your toes for whatever reason. I said, when you get home, just try for a moment treating that person you live with with as much respect as the person you work with. Just for starters. Build that bridge. And then we'll we'll go from there. Yeah. I say, but if you are treating the person you work with with more respect than the person you live with, then we have problems that we're gonna to have to work through. Yeah. All right. But but those those problems can be mitigated just by, you know, by bridging that yeah. uh respect. It's being like aware of it. Being aware of the, the need. Turn the light on a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. That's what happened with my wife and I. Well, my at, at, at that time, my uh, my my future wife and future, I. Right. I, I get the word to don't do anything that would cause her to not trust me. It's like almost like you were mentoring yourself. Parts right. of, your risk manager was talking to you. <laughs> risk manager talking yeah. to me. <laughs> he going, don't you blow this one, Rudy. So, so this what, is a good one, buddy. What do I do, man? <laughs> what do I do, Stan? Yeah. I, I I, uh, I see her for dinner one evening, and the next day, she never saw me again. So I left, because I knew that my risk manager had given me a clear word yeah. that I could not honor. Yeah. Because if I stayed there, I was going to hurt her like I did everybody else. So I left. I never really expected to see her again. And uh, and about a year later. Um, Wow, so there's a whole year in there you didn't see her. Huh? I see it. never expected to see her again. Oh, wow. But a year later, the risk manager returns and says, you know, you should call Juanita and ask her to lunch. I did. We went to lunch. We had a few consecutive lunches and dinners. And about three or four months later, we were married. Oh, wow. Yeah, because at that point, I knew I had reconciled that initial those initial issues. Now I'm still on the journey. I'm still uh, chauvinistic. I'm still running <laughs> the borderline you. bordello. I'm still I'm still doing all of this shit that literally is counterproductive to a um, a healed man. Then I start reflecting. Um, when when I was in my teens, one of my best friends, a guy named. Uh, um, Roy. Uh, Roy and I uh, would sit around and and literally work on the, the the challenges of manhood. And we bought a book by Aubrey Andelin. And how old were you at this point? Uh, fifteen. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Fifteen. Fourteen. Fifteen. All right. Bought a book by Aubrey Andelin. Okay. Um, entitled "Man of Steel and Velvet." Ooh. 1971, 1971, Man of Steel and Velvet. You were born in 57? 56. 56, okay. Yeah. Um, Roy and I read the book. He had a copy, I had a copy. And, and what was fascinating about this book was there was a diagram at the very beginning of the book. I don't even know if this book is still in print, but I still have both of my copies. There's a diagram of a, a silhouette of a man. Okay. Okay. Um, and there's a line going down, the, literally dividing that man in half. You're looking at the silhouette, one half, the diagram says velvet. The other half of the diagram says steel, S-T-E-E-L. And, and what, what Roy and I learned, that a balanced man is half steel and half velvet. And Aubrey Andelin, the author in this book, uh, began to, uh, to, to, to really talk about what velvet meant. Vulnerability, uh, transparency, um, a, a willingness to be intimate, uh, uh, compassion. Far. That's heavy stuff for a fifteen-year-old. Heavy stuff. Yeah. All right. Now I'm telling you, um, rum and weed can really help you through <laughs> yeah. a lot of heavy stuff You're at fifteen. Dead. Okay. Yeah. So um, the vel the steel side, protector, defender. 
Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, all of those. Yeah. those but, but Aubrey Andelin in this book uh, was clear to point out, if you are too much on the steel side, uh, you're going you're gonna to be out of balance yeah. and dangerous. If you're, if you're too much on the velvet side, uh, you won't have adequate boundaries to, to defend yourself or those around you. So, so the goal I learned at 14, 15 years old was to seek balance. Yeah. And, and this journey, yeah, I'm telling you, uh, sometimes I, I, I win, sometimes I don't. Yeah. But my, my journey has always been to seek balance. Yeah. My wife has helped me. Yeah. What she did for me, and I, you know, I know we don't have a lot of time, but what she did for me was... Um, um, she, well, first of all, let me say, let me preface this. She was the first woman I ever trusted wow. with my life. I was taught to not trust my life with anybody. Yeah, I trusted my life with her, which which allowed me enough vulnerability to uh, to risk um, love. She will tell you to this day that I did not tell her I loved her until we were uh, approaching the wedding ceremony. Wow. Yeah, because that's not a word that I, that I, that's, that was a word I had immense respect for, but it wasn't something that I'd ever experienced. Yeah. When I did experience it, I told her I loved her. Yeah. And... And now, uh, at 62, uh, I have the capacity to love people. Yeah. It started by loving her. Yeah. Now, that circle of love expanded over the years to people all over the world. Yeah. That's, you know, it goes back to that word, I mean, and... Um, I mean, that's, that's heavy stuff, you know. I mean, it's, it's amazing that we start that young trying to work and figure this out about being a man mm -hmm. and being a young man. And I think today's, um, there's a couple of my friends who that I've met through the MKP and, and they do coaching and stuff and they work with young men. And I'm sure you've done your share of it. And what's amazing is, um, is the amount of anger that's out there right now. And one of the things that we've noticed, uh, I've noticed in my work, is it's very comfortable for men to be angry. Okay, that's the acceptable emotion. Mm -hmm. um, as I mentioned a little earlier, joy is acceptable as long as we can have fun, but we've got to be responsible. Right. Uh, and we're, we're damn sure not afraid of anything. Right. And we're going to be sad, but it has to fit into a kind of a, a formula. And so we have this warped sense of emotional uh, uh, intelligence, if mm -hmm. you will, that uh, through through being that we're taught, and um, uh, and that before I even knew what racism was, I was a racist. Mm -hmm. And to this day, it took me a long time to be able to admit, like you were saying, you're still dealing with those parts of you. Right. Today, there's a visceral reaction that I will have if I see a white man walking down a street and I see a black man walking. Mm -hmm. Now I know enough where I can stop myself right. and I can deal with people like you right. and I'm not embarrassed to own those parts and see right. because if I keep my shadow out in front of me mm -hmm. then I can heal you know but in this lifetime before I even knew what that those were it was being in, infused in me exactly but there was some part of me that would wanted to go out like you were getting your with Roy and you get this book right and you in this balance because you know, it's funny what we talked about with uh, uh, when I started this podcast was giving tools, and that's one of the tools that I want to continue to give men is it's in the balance. Right. I think the healing is in the balance. Right. You know, now how do you get that balance? You know, continue listening to the podcast. <laughs> you know, continue <laughs> reading. You know, uh, going and we can right. we'll probably end up getting two or three of these because there's just so many subjects that we can talk about. But the core piece is how do you find your way of accepting who we are 
embracing that other part of us that we didn't embrace the vulnerability, which I think people like Brene Brown have done beautiful work right, with, right, you know, and, and she just got this gift of, 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 of putting it out there where right. my men friends are going, have you read Brene Brown? You know, like, <laughs> right. like you don't say it too loud. And I'm like, yo, yo, I got every one of her books. It's great. You know, and, yeah. and, and, and giving it a voice and on these weekend, these men who want to give it a voice and all of a sudden, you know, it's just like you touch them and you say, you can cry. Right. And you can't stop them. I mean, right. it's years that come out. And I know you've just sat there and held yeah. men as they... Over the years. Yeah. And then you deal with your culture and, and, right. and the culture. But at the core, the balance of men between steel and velvet is beautiful. Yeah. Balance. It is a balance. And I think that that's the, the key to how to... Um, um, kind of wrap this whole this first piece up that we're going to do, and uh, we'll come in and do some more. It's like I wrote all these questions. I got to talk to Rudy about you know. So maybe if you'll come back at some point, yeah. we'll we'll do it. And this way, people can digest a little bit. And, but in summary, um, you know what what's the next step? You know, is one of my teachers used to say, "So what?" Right. You know, so what? So so leave them with a little bit of your wisdom. Rudy, this go round is because I judge there's a lot of men out there who will be listening to this and they're, you know, they're in the, their stuff yeah. and they may not know how to get out of their stuff, but their stuff, it may be getting in the car and listening to this and not telling anybody. So let, let's, let's wrap up with this. Yeah. Um, this is one of, so, so I've been a, a, a practicing Christian now for 28 years. And I'm 62, so I came in at about 34. Um, there was one, one particular scripture. Uh, uh, so I'm, I'm one of these Christians who uh, looked at the uh, words of of Jesus. The, you know, and and there there there's a, a version of the of the Bible that have those words in red ink. Um, so I, uh, I've really spent most of my early formation in this particular faith, because uh, I've, I've been on, on multiple tracks. I've been, uh, I've studied Islam and Buddhism and, and, and Christianity. I wanted to know, so what did the, uh, the founder of this, uh, this faith experience say? And what did he think? Well, well, the one thing uh, that, that registered with me was a, uh, a conversation um, some lawyers were having with him one day. Uh, they were smart guys. And, uh, and this was a, uh, a time where um, uh, there were a lot of statues that people uh, in communities lived by. Uh, and at the time this question was asked, uh, there were over 400 statues, uh, specific laws that governed every uh, day life wow. for uh, uh, for a person in Jerusalem in the area around. So they asked uh, uh, Jesus what amounted to a uh, a trick question, and the question was, uh, which of these commandments is most important. Mm. Yeah. And they're about 400, right? Every, dealing with everything from how to how to treat your, your oxen to, you know, uh, how to how to eat dinner, you know? Dietary statues, you know, mm -hmm. relationships that all kinds of statues. And uh, and Jesus looked at that that really smart guy and and said um well, there are two. Uh, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then there's another. He said, that's to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, now let's, let's put these, in, these two commandments that Jesus prioritized out of 400 plus in perspective. Um, I believe it's important to have a higher power. You can call that higher power anything you want to call it. Right. I've been around 
the planet enough to know there are a lot of names for a higher power. Yeah, there are. Okay. There are. You know, I speak English, some Ebonics, you know, I got, yeah. you know, but my context is, is, is God. Yeah. But I have met people in Africa and India and, and points in between, um, who who see the creator in in a far broader expanse yeah. than I do. But my one th- my, my one encouragement to that would be, um, it, it, I think it's important to uh, to have some accountability, yeah. and that's what higher power means to me. In essence, I'm not in charge. Yeah. I'm a participant, but I'm not I'm not the end all do all. That's that's what faith faith in a higher power means to me. It means that I am parking my privilege, uh, and 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 literally subverting my authority to something greater. Yeah. Um, but the second one, I also realize that that you can't give what you don't have. Um, Jesus said to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So I encourage people. I said, um, you would have to start that that process by reconciling your love for oneself. Yes. And and if I love myself, then and I use the love I have for myself. See, I'm not making any assumptions that people love themselves. Yeah. But if you can reconcile this. And began to love yourself and began to treat people as good as you treat yourself, yeah. then I guarantee you the world around you will not only look differently, but you will move through that world around you in a very different way. Yeah. Very well said. You know, going back, tying that into what you had said earlier about um, if you treated uh, when you were talking about go and find somebody at your work that you respect, um, and um, when one of my, the, one of my therapists who uh, I think I bought like three cars for <laughs> over the years, uh, I bought a few. Cars yeah, but, you know, I bought some houses, man. Yeah, and uh, but you know, she that she was always said that she said if we can treat the people in our relationships that we love that we're in like we treat people outside our friends the divorce rate would be cut just almost in half if not more instantaneously because we will treat the ones that are closest to us that we love the worst sometimes and the who's closest to ourselves is ourself right you know and so you're right if if i can come from within because there's a paradox, because there's a surrendering, but there's also an accountability right. that Rudy has to wake up every morning and be accountable to Rudy, exactly. as well as to God or Jesus, whatever your spiritual life is. But if you choose to, you know, do a certain behavior, you know, that's on you. Exactly. And so, you know, when we start loving ourselves is to take an inventory right. of, of how we love ourselves. And when and my experience has been that people start running out of things pretty quick. You know, if you ask somebody, how do you love yourself? Right. So we'll, that, we'll, we'll kind of end on that. So, so for all the people who have listened to this, we're going to do some more talks in the future. But how do you love yourself? Yeah. You know, and what do you do every day that will love, you can love yourself more? Because I so believe what you're saying, Rudy, that if I get to a place when I love myself and I accept who I am and I can be in that space, the world is different. Then if I walk out, that if I'm hating myself, if I'm shaming myself, if I'm purposely, either way, I'm getting a payoff, you know, and that's a whole other subject. We get payoffs whether we, you know, uh, uh, we used to, when the men would come in the weekend, we would say, okay, so, you know, what's at risk for you to, you know, uh, 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 not change and go down this path? Well, I'm going to die, you know. Okay, so what's at risk if you get everything you want? Well, there is no risk. (laughs) No, 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 there is, or you wouldn't be here, you know. Of course there's a risk because it's a a lot harder to be big and to love ourselves than it is to, you know, to just disparage ourselves and, and set ourselves off. So... 
So thank you. So if uh, give me your website and uh, give the re- I mean, the listeners here uh, some information because I think you know I think each of you should treat yourselves to uh, some time to uh, listen to what Rudy's done in his life because um, I mean I the other day I spent a, a good couple of hours looking at videos and and listening to your story and it inspires me and it gives me ability to find how do you love yourself yeah. and you're love based above and beyond everything else you know that's why you did the coffee shop you right. know i i could i could have gone on forever and never known you were a pastor <laughs> but you were just a cool dude that would yeah. sit and come and talk to me and yeah. and uh, uh and that we would spend some time together and here we are doing this together so well folks can find me at pastorrudy.net s p a s t o r r u d y.net and you know all my info is there uh directions to the coffee shop um you know, great coffee, by the way. Yeah, most of I'm the here folks to tell you who drink coffee that don't know I own it, and that's yeah. cool. Yeah, um, one, one that's thing, your balance. That's my balance, man. <laughs> one thing I've learned along the way is uh, to not worry about who gets the credit as long as good is being served. We'll end on that one. Thank you very much, Rudy. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed this podcast today, and I hope it got you thinking. If so, feel free to visit my website, stanhoperocks.com, and sign up for my newsletter. I'd love to hear from you on what's changing in your life and where you're making a difference. Thanks, and keep moving forward. Namaste. Namaste.